to speak on subjects that are timely and relevant. So does anyone know what next Monday is? Purim. What? Is it Purim? Purim. 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 Yes. Purim. Monday evening, the sixth, through Tuesday evening, the seventh, is Purim. Purim. The fourteenth of Adar on the Jewish calendar. And so, I thought it'd be interesting to take another look at the Book of Esther, which is the basis for the Feast of Purim the whole holiday of Purim, because we haven't talked about it in several years. And I did research on this and posted it on our website, on the Feast Days page, and I placed this week a link from the first page of the website under the news box, so you can easily find it. It goes into greater detail about Purim. So I won't repeat what's all in that article that you can read for yourself, but I want to expand on it with some additional information, take a look at the scriptures here today. And I've titled this, Cautionary Tales of Life in the Diaspora. It tells about what the Jews had to endure in the diaspora in the Persian, uh, Babylonian Persian exile. Now, in the book of Esther, there are two main themes throughout the book. The first is the replacement of a queen with a competitor, call that a harem story, and secondly, replacement of a vizier with a competitor, a court story. And these two themes are then interwoven together in the book of Esther. In the harem story, you have Vashti and Esther, Vashti refused to appear before King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and was removed as queen. A new queen was chosen in a beauty pageant, Esther, in chapter 2, verse 17. The vizier Haman developed a plan to kill all the Jews in the realm because they follow their own laws and not the king's laws, in chapter 3, verse 8. Esther planned two parties and invited the king and the vizier, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. The king asked Esther, what's on your mind? What's your petition? It'll be granted to you up to half the kingdom. Chapter seven, verses one and two. Haman is planning to kill her and her people. The king fumes and goes outside to vent his wrath in the garden. Chapter seven, verse seven. He returns to find Haman sprawled on Esther, begging for mercy, and assumes he was sexually assaulting his wife. <laughs> Chapter seven, verse eight. Arbana, an attendant, reminded the king the gallows, gallows Haman had made for Mordecai was set up and available, and the angry king said, hang him on it. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 9. Then there was the court story. In brief, it's a power play between Haman and Mordecai, a struggle between high minister Haman and minor courtier Mordecai. Mordecai overhears two conspirators plotting to kill the king, and they're put to death after investigation. And of course, you know, in those days, uh, they investigated someone, they probably put them on a rack and tortured them until they admitted they did something. <laughs> At least that's what we might surmise that was ha happened a lot of times. 
Um, then the king forgot about it, and Haman was promoted instead of Mordecai. Mordecai felt slighted and refused to bow to Haman. In chapter 3, verse 2, actually there was a more important reason why he would not bow, which we'll get into. Haman's wife and friends tell him he should have Mordecai executed. Chapter 5, verse 10 through 14, Haman prepares the execution stake or gallows and goes to make his request to the king. In chapter 6, verse 4, the chronicles of Persia were read to the king one night when he can't get to sleep. That sure was going to help him get to sleep, all these mm -hmm. legal records, you know, to read chapter 6. And for Mordecai, the king says, this is what is done for the man the king desires to honor. Chapter 6, verse 11. And there's a lot more behind this story, behind the plot. So let's take a look, first of all, uh, some of the verses here. In Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 1, says this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who rule over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Xerxes was the Greek form of his name. In Latin, it was Ahasuerus. In Persian, his name was Kashakyarsha. And, and they have no idea what it meant. It must have meant something, but nobody knows what his name meant. And in Hebrew, his name was Akashwero. Akashwerosh. And this story opens about April of 483 B.C. Um, and the events occur over a period of 10 years uh, from 486 483 BC the uh, king Xerxes reigned from 486 to 465 BC uh, just over two decades and uh, the events took place between 483 and 473 10, ten year period it's not uh, noted always, uh, but uh, it takes a period over time. And it says here, he ruled over 127 provinces. They've translated Persian documents, and they, they don't find that there were ever 127 provinces. However, interesting thing is the 127 has religious significance. Um, Esther's ancestress, Sarah, who was a uh, name means princess, lived 127 years. So I don't know if there's some um, oh, significance to that, um, but they don't seem to think that there was 127 provinces. And it says stretching from India to Kush. And this is interesting because, uh, confusingly, there were two different places in the ancient world that were named Kush. One was in southern Arabia, and one was in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so you have a situation where I find the New International Version has a footnote saying, Kush here is the Upper Nile region in Africa. But if you look in the Farrar Fenton translation, it has a footnote that says that uh, Xerxes never 
ruled over any part of Egypt, and therefore this Cush must be the Cush in southern Arabia. So at any rate, you can take your pick there. Some of these things in ancient history may remain a bit of a mystery. And it goes on and says, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, one of the three capitals of Persia. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles. The literal Hebrew means the first men. It's the most important people in the kingdom. He gave a banquet for. And it says, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed all the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. 180 days, that is six months. That's half a year. It is thought that probably all of these officials from all over the kingdom didn't sit there getting drunk for six months straight. It probably in rotation. Maybe some came for three weeks or six weeks or whatever and left and then replaced by others. But the, uh, the entire event went on for 180 days, half a year. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. Seven was an important number in biblical numerology and also among the Persians. And in biblical numerology, seven stands for um, completion or perfection. So he gave a, another banquet lasting seven days after the <laughs> banquet that lasted six months in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. And that word garden there, since this is Persia, you would expect that the word garden would be the Persian word for garden, which was paradisos, from which we get the word in English of paradise. But it's not. In the text there, it is the Assyrian Yana. Rather curious, because Assyria had fallen 50 years or so before these events took place, and so it's uh, it was a dead language. So it's rather curious here. Uh, there are reasons, if you read the article on on the Bet Yeshin website, you'll see what some of the reasons were for using Assyrian. So uh, the banquet was in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, and that was only for the men. But not to be forgotten was the women. In verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Queen of King Xerxes. So the men had their own uh, party and the women had their own party. Mm -hmm. And uh, ostensibly, uh, the parties were a little different in the way they were carried out, I assume. Mm -hmm. And so it goes on and says, verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and then it gives names here. Now, uh, the King James says chamberlains, but in actual fact, these were probably foreign slaves that were uh, pressed into slavery or service for the king. He commanded these seven eunuchs 
to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, now, it, it doesn't say, but it perhaps implied, or at least some people think so, that Queen Vashti was being asked to come with only her crown on. <laughs> and she then promptly refused the king's request. Uh, very possibly she didn't want to be leered at by a, really, yeah. <laughs> a large bunch of drunken men. Yeah. Hmm. Now, this is only a, a surmise, of course. doesn't tell us the details here. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and the king became furious and burned with anger. You find several times throughout the book there, uh, he burns with anger quite a lot. And that can be dangerous to be around him then. Hmm. In verse 13, it was voluntary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice. He spoke with the wise men who understood the laws. In other words, they looked at the precedents. And they looked at the precedents, and they couldn't find a precedent for what to do if a queen refused the king's command. <laughs> that, was, that was a new one. So there was no precedent on this. But Memukhan, on the king's staff, said, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against also all the nobles and peoples of the provinces. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they'll despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes command Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So uh, they're worried of the, the women here getting... Uh, um, getting to assert their their rights or their presence, and uh, they didn't want that. They wanted the men to be in control. So he said, therefore, it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, or literally a command of the kingdom, and let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Important to note there, this was not a divorce. You know, in those days, men could marry as many women as they want. Mm. It was not a divorce. She just was not allowed to appear in his presence. In other words, she was going to be relegated to the uh, harem mm. in solitude the rest of her life. Not, not a good future, especially for someone who had been a, a queen of the kingdom. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed through all his vast realm, all will respect their husbands. Well, in chapter 2, moving on, it says, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. So they decided to hold a beauty pageant to find a new queen for the king. Verse 4, let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Interesting, because the word Jew there is Yehudi, which is normally translated uh, person of the tribe of Judah. But it says a, Judah, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, you can't have 
person of the tribe of Judah who's of the tribe of Benjamin because they're two separate tribes. So it's apparently used here in a, in a different sense, uh, maybe a religious sense. And uh, it says, Name Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, who was Kish? Kish was the father of King Saul. And we're going to begin to see what was behind the rivalry here between uh, Mordecai and uh, And the uh, and the uh, uh, other fellow there. <laughs> so um, it says, going on here. Let's see. The women that were chosen received beauty treatments and special food. They were they assigned seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther, verse 10 in chapter 2, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. This is repeated twice. Repeated also again uh, in chapter 2 and verse 20. And it's quite apparent that no one could tell by looking at her that she was a Hebrew. And the reason for that is probably because Abraham, their ancestor, came from uh, Ur of the Chaldees, which was only 150 miles southwest of Susa. And so they're probably um, very racially similar, or you could not uh, look at them and say, oh, he's Jewish, you know. Um, so the uh, revelation of her nationality had to come out in a different way, which it did. So it says, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out Esther was what was happening to her. That was her, her uncle, or cousin rather. Verse 12, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months with oil, myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And. Uh, it reminds me that in, uh, if you look at 2 Samuel 20, verse 3, um, all, uh, all but one of these type of girls end up living as widows uh, trapped in the, in the palace there in the harem. So it wasn't a good future for the ones that weren't chosen. They never had a chance to marry, have families, live their lives. They were like prisoners in the harem for the rest of their lives, Sol in solitude, uh, unmarried. It says, uh, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the concordance says this would have been January 479 BC, almost four years after the banquet. Now, why is the date important? Well, because if you know your high school history, what happened in 480 BC with the Persians? That was the year of the Battle of Salamis. 
where the Persians invaded Greece, one of their invasions of Greece, and it was the great sea battle of Salamis that took place, a naval battle. Uh, the Greeks were led by their great general Demosthenes, and Xerxes was present. He found the highest hill and had his nice gold throne set up on the top of the hill so he could survey and watch what he thought was going to be a glorious Persian victory. And it wasn't. The uh, greatly outnumbered Greeks were much uh, better seamen and their ships were much more maneuverable and they totally defeated the Persians in that battle as well as then a land battle with uh, that followed this, and Xerxes then went back in disgrace to uh, Persia, and we might surmise maybe to take his mind off of his troubles, he turned his mind to uh, the search for a wife and his harem. We might we might uh, surmise at any rate. And uh, again, the king gave a great banquet. They loved to have banquets there. Verse 18, Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And it's interesting because in the uh, encyclopedia it says the Persian queens received a tenth of all fines paid to the Persian king, which provided their wardrobe and furnishings and, and other necessities. So there's probably a lot of money because I think there were probably a lot of fines that were leveled. Mm. And uh, so it speaks uh, of royal liberality. Verse 19, chapter two, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality a second time. It says that just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she'd done when he was bringing her up. So even though she was now the queen, she followed the directions obediently of her male cousin who brought her up, who was obviously older. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And that was something that happened with great frequency in the ancient world. In fact, Xerxes himself ended up dying by assassination by a man named Artabanus, according to the historians, Greek historians who wrote about it. And if you look at Israelite history, the last king of Israel, Omri, King Omri, uh, he took the throne by killing his predecessor, I think it was Zimri, and, and that one took the throne by killing his predecessor, who killed his predecessor. There were about four or five kings in a row that were died by assassination, some of them only on the throne for a few months. Yes. So it was a very rough time, and there was a lot of assassinations uh, like that. And so when Mordecai told the king, uh, revealed the plot to the king and stopped the plot, the king was, of course, 
I was very happy to hear that, very congratulatory, and then promptly forgot about it. He had a lot of other things on his mind, including salamis <laughs> and finding a wife and uh, a lot of other things. Um, then in chapter 3, after these events, well, it doesn't say how long after, but looking at the details here, the scholars believe that it was five years later after these events. In the 12th year of Xerxes, or about 474 BC, chapter 3 takes place. And Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials of the king's gate knelt down, paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, some people surmise that he wouldn't do this because uh, being Hebrew, he wasn't going to bow down to a pagan. But that's not the case because we find that in the Bible, Israelites did bow before foreign authorities. Abraham bowed before foreign authority, Genesis 23, verse 7. So that's not the reason. It goes on and says in verse 3, Then the royal officials of the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? In other words, to bow before Haman. Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. They kept nagging and nagging him, Why won't you do this? And he wouldn't tell them the real reason for a long time. And they finally gave in, and he finally told them that he was a Jew in verse 4. And, of course, that meant something to Haman, because Haman, being an Agagite, uh, you know, they, they went way back in, in uh, warfare with the Hebrews, and there was great bitterness between them when Saul didn't follow God's orders and kill Agag and uh, allowed him to live and his descendant was here telling Mordecai to bow to him. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now this type of Mass slaughter was also very prevalent in the ancient world. In fact, in Persia, 50 years earlier, there was a mass slaughter of the Magi, the, the wise men. You remember the, the Magi, the same people who came to visit uh, Yeshua uh, uh, after his birth. And 100 years before this, there was a mass slaughter of Scythians. So um, this was a common thing in the ancient world, a very brutal time. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, month of Nisan, they cast the fur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select the day and month. And the lot fell in the 12th month, the month of Adar. So they cast the fur. Interesting, the fur is where we get the word parim. And it is not a Persian word, and it's not a Hebrew word. It is an Assyrian word. It's 
strangely enough, with the Hebrew suffix im put on the end of it. In Assyrian, the lot is peru. In Persian, it's isku. In Hebrew, it's goral. It's interesting that words from a defunct language were used here in the text. <clears throat> Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There are certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. That word separate is the meaning of the word Pharisee, separated ones. Mm. That's not what it means here. Their customs are different from all other people. They do not obey the king's laws. It's, best not, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury. That much silver, and one of the commentaries from the 1960s says was worth over $6 million. It's probably worth $12 million today <laughs> with inflation. The value keeps going up of everything. Uh, it was a lot of money, but the king would not take the, the bait. He refused to be bribed. Interestingly enough, verse 11, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So he, he allowed him to do what he wanted without paying a bribe. Then on the 13th day of the first month, that would be April 17th, 474 B.C., the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script of each province in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps to annihilate all the Jews. It says, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. So the 13th day of Adar, which is the 12th month, on the Hebrew calendar and also on the Assyrian calendar. Strangely enough, it's the first month in the Persian calendar, and we're in Persia here, so this keeps getting strange. But at any rate, 13th day of the 12th month, um, then became, the next day became uh, Purim, the 14th day of the 12th month, which is next Monday the 6th and to plunder their goods. Then we go into chapter 4, and in verse 12 it says, um, it's a story about how Mordecai persuaded Esther to help. <coughs> and it, uh, Mordecai said to her, do not think because you're in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come, will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Famous verse of scripture. When Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Interesting thing is that in the Talmud, they have a disagreement over whether to feast or fast hmm. for Purim. <laughs> some insist you gotta feast, some insist you gotta fast. Well, hmm. no consistency in, in Judaism, apparently. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king 
even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And then chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on the royal robes. That three, you know, there's significance to numerology here. Three symbolizes spiritual completeness. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 says, on the third age we will rule. A lot of things you could possibly uh, get from this. Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall. When he saw King Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And uh, then proceeds to tell us about Esther's request to the king, but it's interesting because um, he asked, what is your request? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And that was a common phrase that kings would use. Uh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, but, but if you ever ask for half of his kingdom, it'd be off with your head, of course. So you don't want to take that literally. But at any rate, she asked to prepare a feast for the king, Haman, and herself. And they had that feast. They got together at the meal. And did she get cold feet? What was the, the reason she didn't go through and ask the king her favor? Instead, she asked that they get together for another feast the next day. <laughs> I think she maybe needed to steal her or resolve or something. I, I don't know. So then in banquet number two, it tells us there in verse eight, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So that the second one was when she answered the question. And in verse nine, Haman went out on that day happy and in high spirits. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Zeresh is a Hebrew word meaning a stranger in want, interestingly enough. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the kings had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. <laughs> And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And in verse 14, his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high. Interesting because the Western Bible versions all speak about a gallows um, and, and that Haman was hung on it. But in the Hebrew, it could also be translated uh, a stake, mm -hmm. and that he was, uh, um, uh, I think of the word, you know, he was impaled, is the word I'm looking for, impaled on the stake. Mm -hmm. And because translators put their Western bias into the text they translate as gallows and the painters show a picture of gallows you know like you picture from the old west wild west but it's probable that this was a a, a, a stake 
it was 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet high. Very big, very big, as we see in verse 14. In chapter 6, that night the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought into him. And there he read the story about how his life was saved by uncovering the the attempts to uh, conspiracy to assassinate him. And uh, he says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked in verse 3. Nothing has been done for him, the tenants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai in the gallows he erected for him. And this is really kind of hilarious because uh, Haman came to ask to have Mordecai executed along with all his people and the king says to him uh, rhetorically speaking well, what should be done for a, a man who the king desires to honor and of course thinking it's him <laughs> Haman says oh you know all this should be done for him and so the king says you're right we're going to do that for for Mordecai tomorrow. <laughs> and, and so uh, that was humiliating again for Haman. And then chapter 7, it tells about Haman being hanged. In Hebrew, Haman means a rager. And it's kind of ironic because although his name means a rager, the king ended up raging at him. Verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out of the palace garden. And this was the occasion where Queen Esther finally said to the king, Haman wants to kill me and all of my countrymen, all my people. And the king got enraged and stalked out to the garden. And again, it's the Assyrian word for garden, Ganah, <laughs> not the Persian word, Paradisos, as you would really expect. And he came back in to find that the uh, Haman, uh, Haman was sprawled over his wife Esther, <laughs> begging her mercy, and he took it. She, he's there raping her or something. And he got angry and had Haman taken out to be hung, hanged. And they put a as soon as word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, and then uh, they hanged Haman on the gallows or the stake he had prepared for Mordecai. And then chapter 8, the king gave an edict on behalf of the Jews. Esther approached the king a second time without permission and was had the golden scepter extended to her again, and she asked that the edict that all the Jews be killed be reversed and instead that the Jews be allowed to slaughter all their enemies and take all their property um, literally and uh, the orders were given and written in the script of each province and the language of each people reminds me of in Persia the Behistun rock in which Darius uh, a previous king uh, had carved out in the cliffs in three different languages uh, telling all about 
how great he was as a king. Uh, and so everybody could understand it. And it says here in chapter 9, verse 3, all the other nations were afraid, or chapter, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2, all the other nations were afraid of the Jews. In chapter, verse 6, in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. And then we read about the creation of the Purim celebration, March 6, 473. BC. In chapter 9, verse 18, the Jews of Susa had assembled on the 13th, 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews living in villages observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. Uh, the Jews refer to it as Mishloach Manot, or delivery of goodies <laughs> during Purim. And at Purim, they like to eat jelly donuts and things like that, uh, celebrate, and they like to get drunk. Uh, they want to get so drunk that they don't, uh, they can't tell the difference between blessed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. <laughs> That's pretty drunk. Uh, and there's more if you look at the article on the Bet Yeshurun website. <laughs> more telling about how the Jews celebrate Purim. That is not a godly holiday. And because it um, is celebrated very close to the time of the New Orleans Feast of Mardi Gras, it's taken on a lot of the same festivities of Mardi Gras. And you will see. Uh, if you lived in my Jewish neighborhood across the road, on Monday evening, there is a parade of cars with music blaring and lights flashing, uh, and, uh, and they're keeping their holiday. Presumably they're not drunk at the wheel. Uh, and then in verse, uh, says King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to the distant shores. And it says it's all written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. And that's pretty much the book. It ends saying that he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. So summing things up here behind the plot Mordecai was a Benjamite of the family of Saul, descendant of Kish, the father of King Saul, chapter 3, verse 5. Haman and Amalekite of the family of Agag, last king of Amalek, chapter 3, verse 1. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul's failure to slay Agag and establish a dynasty explains Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman. And Haman scorned laying hands only on Mordecai, so Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The Amalekites were historic, longtime enemies of Israel, chapter 3 and verse 7. And uh, interesting points, evidence that it was possibly written by someone from the house of Israel, not the house of Judah. It says in the first month, Nisan. Nisan also known as Kodesh Ha'aviv, the month of spring. Judah's first month 
was Tishri. The first day was Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. So uh, this is not the Jewish calendar that's spoken of here. They're talking about the House of Israel's calendar, the first month, Tishan. Mordecai and Esther are assimilationist nightmares. <laughs> I had that out of the encyclopedia, but it's true. They were assimilationist nightmares who follow no Torah commands or particular Jewish practices. Their destiny depends on a fragile series of precarious consequences. There's no mention of God anywhere in the book and no cries of next year in Jerusalem. <laughs> From what you see in the book of Esther, the Jews are perfectly happy to be living there in Persia and have no desire to go back to Jerusalem. At least that's, that's what's pictured. Esther's name is a variation of Ishtar, uh, was the Assyrian god of love and war. Haman, interestingly enough, is thought to be uh, from the Assyrian god Hamban. So a lot of Assyrian in here. Um, and alcohol drinking to excess without restraint is a common feature of, of Purim, so I hope you will not celebrate Purim, at least not to excess. <laughs> uh, Xerxes took the throne of Persia in 486 BC, which coincidentally enough is exactly 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And why is that important? Because we're told in chapter 2 that uh, Mordecai and Esther were taken in the exile at the fall of Babylon. So you can see something is not right there because Esther would be over 100 years old when Xerxes took the throne. And so there is a, a number of scholars that believe that the book was actually written telling about uh, an exile of the House of Israel to Nineveh, and that after the House of Israel was exiled and gone for good, uh, Jewish rabbis got hold of it and changed some of it around to make it a story about a, a Jewish uh, exile in, in Persia. But interestingly enough, scholars don't know of any Jewish exiles that were taken from Jerusalem by Babylon and placed in Susa because Babylon didn't control Susa. Uh, and so they wouldn't have placed them in Susa. So there's an interesting there, but you can read the article online and form your own conclusions about that. There are different versions of Esther, two Greek versions, two Aramaic versions, in addition to the Hebrew version of Esther. The Jewish version adds prayers to God, prophetic dreams, and recognition of God's intervention. And the Qumran community would not use the book of Esther for obvious reasons, because to them, intermarriage with Gentiles was a capital crime. 
and and that was Hester and Mordecai big time. Mm. So Qumran would not have been happy with with Esther and the Book of Esther. Six additions to the Greek version included two dragons fighting, a second attempt on the king's life. Uh, first one is in chapter two mentioned. Expanded text on Esther's approach to the king. Uh, Mordecai pictured as a dreamer like Daniel and Joseph in the Bible. The original Hebrew had 167 verses, 107 additional were added in the Greek versions later. Uh, the great theological scholar C.C. Torrey in 1944 wrote, the main reason for making the additions was to give the story of Esther the religious atmosphere that is so badly lacking in the Hebrew version. And the Greek version adds a colophon addition at the end with information on the text's composition. It says that it was translated in the reign of Ptolemy the Twelfth. 77 to 76 BC in Alexandria, Egypt. So uh, we know that the book of Esther was um, messed around with uh, several several times by Aramaic versions, Greek versions, and, and so forth. However, there is uh, a lot of interesting information that does pertain to life in the exile uh, in those days. Um, so you could call the Book of Esther a cautionary tale of life in the exile. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that book. Uh, so it's well worth uh, your, your time reading. So uh, I'll close with that. And uh, that should explain why we're not adding next Monday Purim to our church calendar, our assembly calendar. <laughs> uh, are there any questions?